I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Historic. Hi, I'm Ian Hedeman, singing in Vancouver. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. We have taken that first big step of a national universal pharmacare. Our question, are you able to afford your medications? Can Canada afford a national pharmacare plan? It'll give the federal government massive bargaining power against big pharma. I was wondering about heart medication. You know, like blood thinners and um, high blood pressure and things like that. Why weren't they covered? Those who are opposing it always seem to have their own medical system and coverage. The agreement between the federal Liberals and the NDP to fund certain contraceptive and diabetes drugs may be a big step, but it's still a long way from a national universal pharmacare program. Most of you have at least some of your prescription drugs covered by some sort of insurance plan, but we do have a two-tiered healthcare system when it comes to drugs. In fact, there are many tiers. As we'll hear over the next 90 minutes, some Canadians don't fill essential prescriptions because they can't afford them. And here's another cost consideration. The Parliamentary Budget Office estimates the cost of a true universal pharmacare system would be $40 billion a year. And so our questions, are you able to afford your medications? Can Canada afford a national universal pharmacare plan? And in the last half hour, how are you remembering former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney? Political journalist Steve Pakin will join us to talk about the legacy of the man who led the progressive conservatives to two straight majority governments. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. From CBC Radio, this is Checkup, the podcast. Cross-country checkups live broadcast from March 3rd, 2024. Well, according to the Public Health Agency of Canada, nearly 1 in 10 Canadians is living with diabetes. And I want to start the show by speaking to a mother who knows what kind of burden that can be financially. Tammy McLaren is the mother of a 17-year-old who is diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 8. Hi, Tammy. Hi there. Welcome. Hi from New Glasgow, Nova Scotia. Always nice to have the Maritimes on the show. Can you break down what Courtney's diabetes-related costs uh, come out to each month? So if we talk about just insulin, that runs around $750 to $800 a month. That is with no coverage. Even with coverage, uh, only 80% is done, is covered. So um, even 80%, that's about, I ran the numbers, $1,800 covered above and beyond uh, a year for Courtney just for insulin, just to keep her alive. She has type 1, so she needs insulin to stay alive. Mm-hmm. If there's no coverage at all, 750 to $800 a month just for the insulin, not the supplies, that's around $9,000 a year. So if you did the math for the last nine years, that's $81,000 just for insulin. Yeah, I mean, the math is, is, is staggering. So how have you managed to afford all of this? So over the last nine years, had benefits, haven't had benefits. 
I lost my job last July. So you do what you have to do. Insulin keeps my daughter alive. So you find a way, um, you know, lines, credit, credit cards, things like that. Um, benefits are certainly a godsend. When you lose benefits, it is a really big kick for sure. So what this announcement did last week, three different things. It lightened the load hugely for a lot of people that are just regular people. They're working, you know, and paying their bills and just getting by. Then you're given this disease that you have to try and manage. You never get a day off from diabetes. At best, it's manageable. At the worst, it's horrific because it can affect many, many different things. If you keep a diabetic healthier when they're younger, it's less of a load on the healthcare system later on. So to have the government come forth and say, we're going to pay for insulin, it's huge. It's a nice example of what parties can do when they work together as well. Let's hope that's the beginning of, of things to come. And the third is when Canada says it's going to pay for all the, the um, insulin for Canada, then they bargain as one country versus right now it's splintered by province and territories, much stronger um, bargaining power. And you send in your best of, of the best to bargain and you're going to get some deep discounts because what big pharma does not want to have Canada to to be a supplier? There's so They've much made, in your story. You know, they, yeah, sorry, go ahead. You go ahead. Sorry. They, big pharma has, has gotten rich far too long. Are they going to be upset about this? Probably. And that's good because they shouldn't be getting rich off medications that you need to keep someone alive like insulin. So much of your story is is fascinating, and I'm sure for a lot of the people who are listening and watching, troubling as well. One of the things you talk about is, you know, you've had a job, you've not had a job. Not having a job and losing the benefits uh, created a huge financial hardship. It sounds so much like Americans talking about hospital care, you know, going to the doctor, basic health care. I think maybe a lot of Canadians don't think about the financial hardship when somebody loses their job and their benefits. You also pointed out how, how the, di the insulin obviously is critical to the survival of your daughter. So you always had to find a way to pay for it. Was there ever a point at which you thought, I, I can't, you know, pay these bills? No, you would, I would find a way. Thankfully, I have always been able to. Um, each family would be unique and individual, and each cost is a little unique and individual depending on what type of insulin they're on. There's over 200 different types of insulin. I know the government has mentioned about going for the generic, and it's cheaper if it works, great. If a diabetic is sensitive and they found something that works, I hope lots of logistics to work out with this, then just a letter from the doctor and they would continue to be able to get what they need. But certainly uh, if generic works, then wonderful for sure. And pharmacare is really the unfinished business of Medicare, isn't it? You know, in Canada, we have health care. If we go, if we get sick, we can go to the doctor. We don't need to have any coverage to go and see a doctor. And if we're in the hospital or jail, we would get our medication. But walk outside those doors with a prescription and it comes down to finances, doesn't it? Whether you can fill that prescription or if you fill it, you need to make it last twice as long, which we've heard many times over of, of seniors on a fixed income. They're cutting their pills in half to make it to their next um, check, things like that. So we live in Canada. We have health care. We need to start. And this is a great step towards leaning into pharmacare 
and maybe working together, the parties working together, which they should be doing because you can get a lot more done, leaning in, working together. Every year they come out and start covering more medications, the ones that are in the top demand. That's the deciding factor. Just a suggestion from my end. <laughs> These drugs are so, or insulin alone, so expensive for you. And it shouldn't be. For, it but, shouldn't be. But so expensive for you and your family. Um, it, uh, you know, there's another part to our question. The, the, the Parliamentary Budget Office says, estimates that true universal pharmacare, so not just insulin, but, but all prescription drugs, would cost $40 billion a year. And so part of our question is, can we afford to have universal pharmacare in this country. How do you answer that? Can we afford not to? Because if we don't have healthy citizens, especially diabetics, if they're well cared for when they're younger, they're going to be a healthier diabetic when they're older, it's going to be a drain on the healthcare system later. So pay now or pay later. Uh, You know, Canada is a member of the OECD. And for people that don't know that, I have to look organization and cooperation and development for cooperation and development. And that's to create better policies for better lives. They are a member of that. And there's many, many countries that are a member of that, that have pharmacare. We're, we're not unique. We Medicare, the partner to that is pharmacare. It's really the unfinished business because we can see a doctor and they say, you need this medication to get better, but then you can't afford the medication. It is always important and helpful for someone who's having medical issues to have a strong advocate. And uh, I think your daughter's lucky to have you advocating for her and advocating for this cause. Tammy, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Tammy McLaren is the mother of a child with type 1 diabetes. You can call us at 1-888-416-8333 to take part in the program, to respond to what Tammy said, or to answer our questions. Are you able to afford your medication? Can Canada afford a national universal pharmacare plan? You can also send uh, your questions or comments to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Since the federal government uh, presented its pharmacare plan on Thursday, there have been lots of questions about what it actually means for Canadians, both in terms of their health, but also their wallets, and help break down what we know so far. We're joined now by Andre Picard, a health reporter and a columnist for The Globe and Mail, and he is in Vancouver. Hi, Andre. Hi. Uh, Let's start with what we know about this bill so far, the government has said that some diabetes medications and some contraceptives will be covered uh, in their entirety with this pharmacare plan to start. Uh, why do you think the, the government chose this route uh, to start with just these two categories and some of the things in those two categories? I think there's a couple of reasons. One is the politics of it. They had to have a deal with the NDP to keep themselves in power, so they had to do something. These are two easy, you know, low-hanging fruit. Uh, lots of people use contraceptives, uh, diabetes uh, patients are, are in fairly great need. So these were easy politically to do. So it's a start. The, the big question is where are we going to go from here? I want to play you a clip from Marc-Andre Gagnon, an associate professor researching pharmaceutical policy at Carleton University. We asked him why the government and the NDP may have chosen to, to have diabetes medications covered in the bill. Here's part of his answer. 
Diabetes is a very important issue. When you look at socioeconomic disparities, for example, lower-income people have huge problems of access to treatments for diabetes, or you have a lot of what we call cost-related non-adherence. So basically, people not doing the treatments exactly like they should because of cost. Andre, based on your reporting and your knowledge of this file, and I know you are very knowledgeable, what's your sense of how significant a problem it is uh, that uh, the cost of drugs is out of reach of some people in Canada? Oh, it's definitely a big problem. We have all kinds of government programs to cover various drugs for various income levels, but there's lots of holes in there. It's a it's a very uh, safety net that's not very strong. So yeah, it's definitely a problem. Diabetes is an example, uh, one of the most egregious ones where people do, uh, if they're undertreated, they they become blind, they have amputations, they have. Uh, require lose their kidneys. This has serious uh, effects if you're not well treated. We're live here on Cross Country Checkup with Andre Picard, a health reporter and columnist for The Globe and Mail. Our question today, are you able to afford your medications and can Canada afford a national pharmacare plan? Our number is 1-888-416-8333 or you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Andre, what do we know at this point about how this new plan is going to affect people who already have coverage? Well, that's one of the great unknowns. We don't know. Uh, We know with, you know, we had a dental plan recently introduced, and it was very clear that if you already had insurance, you're going to keep it if you have a certain income level. This is much more murky. So it's uh, sort of to be announced later. So we we don't really know what happens. The insurance industry doesn't know. The provinces don't know. So there's a a step-by-step process that has to go, and it really just starts with negotiating with the provinces and territories, and, and not even that has been done. The federal health minister said this week that this current plan, which is only a small portion of what a a universal pharmacare plan would be, but the current plan will cost roughly $1.5 billion to implement, although that could change after negotiations with the provinces. I want to play a clip from economist Emmanuel Faubert, who has been critical of the pharmacare deal. She works with a think tank called the Montreal Economics Institute, which, which issued a report criticizing the idea of universal pharmacare. Take a listen. Fiscally, you're you're going from something that might be voluntary in the terms of like people negotiate, they choose the one they want. You 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 have some form of choice in terms of which plan you you go for. And it means that in order to cover that, you're gonna have to take more out of the paycheck of Canadians. So that's the perspective from a think tank called the Montreal Economics Institute, which receives funding from many sources, including a small amount from the pharmaceutical industry. Andre, the federal government is making the case that this plan will actually save money for Canadians. What's the argument there? Well, the argument is if you do bulk buying, uh, you can negotiate better prices. Uh, If you get rid of some of the bureaucracy, there's currently uh, 102 public drug plans in Canada, then these should bring back savings. So that's the theory. Uh, We don't know. You know, these things that I I think in everyone's experience, uh, government programs, uh, the costs don't go down. But uh, whether the costs would otherwise rise more, we, we don't know. Some provinces, uh, Alberta and Quebec, for example, are saying that they would like uh, to opt out of pharmacare because uh, they have coverage plans of their own. How difficult is it for the federal government to try to get provincial governments on board with a plan like this? Well, I think uh, it always comes down to money in these, these questions. So uh, this is what the negotiations are about. But they take a long time. Uh, you know, the the dental deal took a long time. We negotiate things 
jurisdiction by jurisdiction. It's painfully slow. Uh, it's our system. Uh, I, I found it funny, these problems saying they're going to opt out. I think it's more of a question, who's going to opt in? Uh, what's it going to be? Uh, there will probably end up being some transfers of money, uh, particularly uh, with Quebec. Quebec already has its own pharmacare program. Um, BC already has a plan to for free contraceptions. It costs $40 million. Probably the solution there is just transfer $40 million. So th this is all going to be resolved uh, in some sort of negotiation. I, I know we touched on a lot of topics, Andre, but let me finish with this, and it may repeat something you said before, and that's completely fine. But what, what is first and foremost in your mind uh, in terms of questions, something you're seeking clarity or details about when it comes to this step towards uh, a pharma care plan? I think the big question is, what's, what's the ultimate goal? Is it a single, a universal, publicly funded system? Uh, the Liberals haven't been clear on that. They've been clear about these two categories of drugs. The NDP has been clear that's what they want. But I, I think we're going to end up with some sort of mixed model, ultimately, like most countries. Uh, people don't will are not going to willingly give up their private insurance. Most people are actually happily, happy with their drug insurance in Canada. So I think it, it really comes down to a fundamental philosophical question. Do we want to break up a whole bunch of stuff like private coverage and create a, a bureaucratic government plan for everyone? Or do we want to have a, a fill in the, the the blank system where let's focus on the people who have real trouble now, people with uh, who can't get their diabetes drugs, uh, people uh, who are gig workers, people who are working minimum wage jobs that aren't poor enough to uh, uh, be in certain plans that exist now. So I think that's the big one. Do we aim for the people who really need it now, or do we try and create a more grandiose public plan uh, that'll take more time? Andre, you're one of the best health reporters in the country, and it's a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Ian. Pleasure. Andre Picard, health reporter and columnist for The Globe and Mail. Stay tuned. Coming up, the politics of pharmacare. We're going to talk to a professor of political science for his analysis of how this plan came together. In the meantime, of course, we'd love to hear from you. We want to hear whether you are having a hard time uh, paying for prescription drugs. Um, if you think this plan goes far enough or goes too far, uh, maybe you feel like Canada doesn't need a national universal pharmacare plan. Our number is one. 888-416-8333. There's also a text option. The text number is 226-758-8924, 226-758-8924. People also getting in touch with us via cbc.ca slash aircheck, including Judy in Alberta, who says, over the past 40 years of my working life, I've likely been covered for a third of the time. I've gone without my meds on occasion when funds were tight. Not sure what my provincial plan may cover once I retire. Very hopeful for pharmacare and dental programs. Marilyn Parsons is in Burlington, a via air check. She wrote, in my opinion, cost of pharmacare will be offset by huge savings to health care. And Robert Gunn in Toronto writes, of course we can't afford pharmacare. However, as the cost of living keeps increasing, we will forever be looking to government for assistance, increasing our tax burden or continuing to kick our debt obligation down the road. I'm happy to help those in genuine need. I can only hope it will be used responsibly. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. We are live on Cross Country Checkup on CBC Radio, CBC News Network and other CBC platforms. And let's go to Ron Ferris, who's in Saanich, British Columbia. Hi, Ron. Hi. I, my wife and I are in our 80s. I'm, I'm 88 years old and mm -hmm. uh, 
like so many seniors, my uh, cost of, is rising uh, almost annually for needed uh, pharmaceuticals. But uh, the question that I think is most important is, can Canada afford it? Uh, I can barely, but Canada has a bizarre tax system presently. That is, we've had two recent studies. One was in 2019 when the Independent Parliamentary Budget Office studied how much tax was avoided thanks to foreign tax havens. And it revealed in two reports, one in 2020, one Mm -hmm. in 2021, that wealthy uh, individuals avoided paying six billion dollars yeah. in 2019 thanks to foreign tax havens so ron and, ron and let me corporations let me, let, avoided paying yeah let me let me jump in and say billion. we we have done programs on taxation and uh, and fair taxation no doubt we'll do them again in the future in the future and and uh, you know i'm i'm sorry yeah, to inter- but interrupt the question i thought was can canada afford a national pharmacare uh, plan. And what we found now in the November the 2nd, uh, uh, 2023 study by Canadian Press was that tax avoidance by Canadian companies transferring their money to Luxembourg cost us $120 billion in over 10 years. In Mm -hmm. other words, there's massive hemorrhaging in our tax system. Yeah, I, so, I, I, I hear you. Can we afford it? Yes, if these studies are accurate. Yeah. Um, Ron, let me ask you one more question, and that is in terms of the cost to you, um, how are you managing at the age of, of 88 and uh, with a spouse who I, I think you said is also in her 80s? Um, how much are you paying a month, and, and what does that mean for the rest of your budget? Well, we're paying, each of us is paying over $1,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, our plan does not kick in until we've each of us have paid two hundred and fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. I think that's quite common for some some plans. So, well, we're, we're clearly, uh, you know, with inflation and whatever, just just making it as it were. Mm-hmm. So, and and the the reality is that more and more uh, Canadians are aging. And we'll have, a, you know, a very large seniors population within 10 years. Yep. And if there isn't some sort of fair tax system uh, whereby yep. the, the wealthiest individuals and corporations start paying their fair share, I believe we're, we're in real trouble as a okay. nation. All right, Ron, thank you very much for calling our question this week. Are you able to afford your medications? Can Canada afford a national universal pharmacare plan? And our number here on Cross Country Checkup is 1-888-416-8333. Chelsea Martina is in Hampton, New Brunswick. Hi, Chelsea. Hi. I, I see you can't afford your medication. I, T- tell us, no, tell us, Tell us about that. <laughs> Um, I can't afford, actually, my medication. Oh, okay. Um, I'm a single mom of three, but I've been a nurse for 15 years. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, my coverage does not cover a very important medication for a unique autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from that, my background has been recently in long-term care. 
prior to that was pediatric ICUs out west. And so I've been exposed to many kiddos who are very sick, but we've had the technology and the medication to enhance their lives, not only in quality, but also in quantity. Yeah. What I'm nervous about is, and have experienced now working as a director of care and long-term care, these kiddos are reaching the age of 18 and no longer is there any support. Their insurance doesn't cover them. And it doesn't mean that their health challenges or disabilities go away. Mm-hmm. There are still these folks, these human beings, and a blind spot in healthcare. Yeah. So there's that so issue. Okay. Yes, go ahead. That. And then we also have to recognize that a lot of the pol- politics are reactive instead of proactive. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, it would be great for that, but why are we not focusing on proactive healthcare and proactive medication coverage, like many people have brought up, so that when they are in their 50s and 60s, they are proactively on medications that have prevented further complications, but the people who are making these decisions wash their hands and say, that's not my problem in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, so, so so definitely that's an issue, and I'm sure we're going to hear lots of conversation, Chelsea, about that. Um, you mentioned yeah. your personal situation. I don't want to pry, but I am curious oh, on yeah. this program to hear stories like that. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you pay for medications you need and, and what that means right. for you in terms of your household budget? Sure. Yes, sure. So as a single mom, it's very limited. Um, I work as an RN. Unfortunately, I, in New Brunswick, um, we are in desperate need of RNs, but there's no full-time positions because it's cheaper to hire casual people and not pay benefits. So that is unfortunately not brought up to the public, um, but that's the reality. And so also working 15 years and in a system that's kind of broken, uh, you get discouraged and <laughs> you would think that you would be supported with some kind of healthcare benefits. You're not. I have an, uh, two autoimmune diseases. I was just recently diagnosed with one. And one of the medications to treat that is about $600 a month. And as a single mom, that's not an option for me even making an RN wage when it comes to housing, groceries, three children that you want to put in extracurricular activities and set them up for their future, I sacrifice my health, which will affect the healthcare system later on. So to be clear then, Chelsea, you're saying that this medication for an autoimmune disorder would be $600 a month. You can't afford yeah. it. Therefore, if I understand correctly, you're not taking I'm it. Not. And so. No, I can't. What, what is the consequence to your health of not taking it? Um, I can't work as much, which is kind of a paradox, right? Mm-hmm. So I want to be at work. I want to be, I'm a passionate individual. I care about people. I want to be a very good nurse. I'm physically not able without this medication, unfortunately. And then there's trickle-down effects as well. Uh, unfortunately, in this province, there's, many wait lists 
there's a lack of specialists. And if you want the right medical care, you have to seek either other provinces or the state. So there's a combination. I wish it was a simple answer to say, should we have coverage? Yes, absolutely. $40 billion a year to cover everything. I don't think it's so black and white. It needs to be a bit of gray. Um, Insulin, from a pediatric perspective, absolutely needs to be covered, 100%. Mm -hmm. I've worked Mm -hmm. with families who have newly diagnosed one-year-olds to 14-year-olds. That should be covered. Mm -hmm. But what about the people who have a new diagnosis later on in life? They don't have coverage, and they're going to suck the healthcare system dry when they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s, because they didn't have the opportunity earlier. And that's what's happening now. We're focusing on geriatric population, as we should. However, we have this blind spot of people and vulnerable folks who have no support, no family, and they're 18 to 65, and no one's looking at them and saying, what can we do to prevent more complications later on. Chelsea, thank you very much for your perspective. And I'm sorry to hear that you're in a position where you can't pay for a medication that's been prescribed to you. But thanks for calling. Thank you. I appreciate you accepting my passion. (laughs) Our number here on Cross Country Checkup is 1-888-416-8333. You can also reach us at cbc.ca slash aircheck. Are you able to afford your medications? Can Canada afford a national universal pharmacare plan? Patty Wexler is in London, Ontario. And Patty, can you afford your medications? Right now I can afford um, my medication. Um, can you hear me? I sure can. So right now yeah, you can okay. afford your medications, right but that, that makes can. it sound like you're concerned that in the future that's going to change. Why is that? It is. Well, what's happening in, in my family is I have a dual diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis and fibromyalgia. Mm-hmm. My medications cost on average about $1,700 a month. Wow. Um, it's known as, as the rich person's disease for a reason. Hmm. Now, what's happening is my husband has actually worked longer. He'll be working till he's 70, which has been four, four years or three, three and a half years. And his insurance will drop off. I was laid off um, when I was 50 and didn't go back to work because I wasn't physically able to. Mm-hmm. So I lost my benefits. So I have a five-year period where I will not be on the... Uh, I will be ineligible. I won't have any insurance, nor will I be eligible for the Ontario Drug Program. So we'll have to pay the whole cost of uh, my medication, which is over $20,000 a year. I mean, that that is staggering. Um, is, it is. And so what, how are you going to do that? Well, you know, I don't know how. Um Probably, uh, I honestly, I, I I've listened to some of your callers just as I've waited to come on to speak with you, and thank you for having me. And I do watch you quite often. Yeah, well, thank um, you for calling. I appreciate that. I am listening to some of your callers, and probably going to do some of the things that they do, and which is you know stagger my medications, not take them as often. Um, it's going to affect my health. Right now, I'm in clinical remission because I'm able to take my my medications appropriately. But I see a time when I will not 
be able to do that because it's just, as you said, staggering um, the cost of of my own medication. Now, while I think it's it's wonderful that we are covering the costs of uh, diabetes medication and contraceptives, and I mean that sincerely. That's a, my father had diabetes, so that's wonderful. But I do think the PharmaCare plan needs to go farther than that. Um, Forty billion dollars seems like a lot of money, but we spend that that type of money in, on other ventures. Mm-hmm. And why can't we redirect some of those funds on maybe some less important things and redirect it into into healthcare into the PharmaCare plan? Because I do think down the road it will be offset by better health for. Um, people moving forward, the people such as myself. And that that's a selfish outlook, I understand. It's not selfish at all. I, I don't mean to be selfish, but um, it's I'm scared. I'm scared for the next four years because I know that we're going to be hit with this huge cost. And, you know, part of me, feel I feel to blame for that. You know, it's like I've been, if, if you were to meet me, you'd see, you'd say, oh, you look great. You look fine. It's, it's not a debility. It's it doesn't show on the outside. It's an invisible illness, right? Mm-hmm. But um, the costs are so prohibitive. I mean, one of the medications I'm on is about $800 a month just for the biologic. Mm-hmm. So rheumatoid arthritis, arthritis in general, is one of the top three reasons people are, are on disability in Canada. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. I'm not. I just want to remind our audience in case people are just tuning in and didn't hear the beginning. We're talking to Patty Wexler, who's in London. She's called us uh, and talking about the fact that right now her meds for rheumatoid arthritis are covered by her husband's health plan, but he's retiring soon. And the meds cost $20,000 a year. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, Patty... I, I guess let's let's finish with this. I, I did ask you before, but I'm just imagine I, I can't actually imagine what it's like to be at that stage where you're not working, where your husband is four years away from retiring, where you're looking at, you know, and there are other things too that you, you're going to have to pay for, but you're looking at $20,000 a year for these really important drugs. Just for meds. Have, yeah. Have you looked at your budget? Have you have you kind of oh, yeah. figured out oh, yeah. like, where we've, this is going to come we, from? Yeah. Yeah. We've 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 done some planning. We just did some planning earlier on. Um, but when we we did our initial retirement plan, we only budgeted for about ten thousand dollars a year because I wasn't on the biologics yet, mm-hmm. not knowing. So now we're on the biologics and we're getting closer to retirement. So it's it's harder to plan. <laughs> Yeah, you know, for the extra cost. I mean, it's going to come from somewhere, but we're in that funny place. I, as I said to my husband, that even if they do extend or expand the PharmaCare program with our income, I doubt we'd qualify for it because it'd be some sort of eligibility requirement that we wouldn't meet. We'd be beyond it because we fall in that funny place mm-hmm. where we don't make quite enough, but we make too much. You know, yeah, I understand. Um, Absolutely. And I know the way the government works. I know the way insurance works. I worked for an insurance company for over 30 years, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it just seems ironic to me that they, they provide their employees with benefits while they're working. But as soon as they stop working, there's no more benefits. Yeah. It just, it doesn't make any sense. 
Patty, I'm sorry to hear about the dilemma, um, but I think I appreciate you. the fact that you uh, are willing to share it because I think it's a really important perspective to to hear. So thank you very much. Well, I've watched you for years, and it's so nice to speak to you on the phone. And I uh, really appreciate that, and I appreciate your time. Thank you. You do great work. Yeah, well, thank you very much. You're listening to Cross Country Checkup or perhaps watching us on CBC News Network. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing in Vancouver, and we're really interested in hearing your stories as well at this number, 1-888-416-8333, or you can get in touch with us via cbc.ca slash aircheck. Um, You know, before we did the program, we were thinking there might be a similarity in stories about people who can't afford medications. But if you've been listening for the first 45 minutes, you realize, I certainly realize, that even though the theme may be the same, the details are are very different, and it's very interesting to hear what people are dealing with. And one of the things that really uh, jumps out at me is hearing people talk about being concerned about either retiring or losing their job because they'll lose their drug benefits. It sounds so much like hearing Americans talk about losing sort of basic health care when they're not employed. I'm not used to hearing those stories in the Canadian context because, you know, a lot of our health care is covered universally, but obviously pharmaceuticals are not. And obviously that is a huge financial burden for people. So tell us your story at one 416 Are you able to afford your medications? But there is another part to this, this uh, question as well. Can Canada afford a national universal pharmacare plan, uh, which is estimated true universal health care or pharmacare would, uh, is estimated to be $40 billion a year. Let's talk to a doctor now. Dr. Margaret Fraser sees the challenges firsthand with her own patients of the cost of prescription drugs. She is both a family physician and an emergency room doctor, and we've reached her in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. Hi, Dr. Fraser. Hello. Um, in your office, uh, how often do patients tell you they can't afford the medication that, that you're prescribing for them? I have to deal with this almost every day. Canada has a patchwork of provincial pharmacare programs, all of which cover some medications and cover others. So I spend an, a significant amount of my time every day trying to find ways to get medications covered for my patients to either get them enrolled in a compassionate care program through a pharmacy or to navigate through the Pharmacare program in Nova Scotia to get what's called an exception status uh, drug approved. Uh, some of which are often turned down for really quite um, inexplicable reasons. You can fill in the form and write down the exact criteria for the medication and sometimes see it not be covered. In addition to that, even for the patients who do have drug plans and who have pharmacare coverage, often there is a copay for the medication and those copays, if you're on at eight medications and have to refill them every few months, can add up to a significant amount of cash. So you do often see patients who either aren't taking their medications at all or who are rationing their medications, taking a dose every other day, cutting pills in half, you know, taking less than what's prescribed, trying to make those medications last as long as they can so they can save money. And unfortunately, this does greatly impact people's health and their outcomes. My family doctor, who I'm very grateful for, and and I've been seeing him for a long time, I mean, he writes me a prescription, I take it, get it filled, pay a very small amount additionally, and I'm good, right? And then he's done with that. All he has to do at that point is monitor my health and make sure it's working the way it's supposed to work. So 
Give me a little bit more of an insight into how you manage these cases where you have to write letters to try to get support for your patients? I mean, how much does that cost and how does that change your approach to prescribing? So I'm very careful when I prescribe to make sure that the medication is either covered by their drug plan or that there's a way to get it covered by their drug plan. I'm very mindful of how much medications cost because when I was younger, I worked at a variety of jobs that didn't have drug plans and I have asthma. So I wasn't able to afford my medications. Uh, And if I hadn't had an incredibly sympathetic family doctor who gave me samples out of the sample covered pretty regularly, I wouldn't have been able to afford my asthma medication. So I do the same thing for my patients. I will try and get a supply of whatever it is they need to tide them over until we can get approval. But sometimes even with All of that being done with the forms being filled in, with me being careful to try and prescribe what I think is the cheapest alternative, I will have patients come back to me pretty regularly and say either that they've been refused the coverage or that they had coverage, but now they've been told by their pharmacy that that coverage has expired. You know, it's a pretty common occurrence. So every day we're dealing with this, every day we're having to fill out forms or counseling patients how to apply to get the Firmacare coverage in the first place. A lot of people in in Nova Scotia, you have to apply for Firmacare when you turn 65. A lot of patients don't realize that. They may still be working and still have a drug plan. So when they retire at 70, they apply for the Firmacare then, but then they have five years of co-pays that they have to pay. It's a kind of a bizarre convoluted system. Mm -hmm. So they spend a lot of time daily trying to help people navigate this. We are live with Dr. Margaret Frazier. She's a family physician and an emergency room doctor on Cape Breton Island. And our question today on cross-country checkup, are you able to afford your medications? Can Canada afford a national universal pharmacare plan? Call us at 1-888-416-8333 or go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Dr. Fraser, because you're also an eMERGE doc, Uh, you get to see that part of this story. And I assume, but you tell me, you see the impact of people who, I mean, are not taking their meds for whatever reason, but including costs. But tell me about what you see in the emergency room. Oh, we absolutely see that in the emergency room. We see patients coming in who aren't taking their medications that they were prescribed, for example, after they've had a heart attack. If you have a heart attack after you've had your treatment, you'll leave the hospital usually on a blood pressure medication, uh, a cholesterol-lowering medication. Even if your cholesterol was all right before the heart attack, the guideposts move afterwards, um, and a blood thinner. So you're coming out on a minimum of three prescriptions. And again, some people can't afford those. They don't have any coverage. Uh, Some of those medications are quite expensive, and so they don't take them. We know that if you don't take those medications for that year after your heart attack, you will do much more badly. You'll have a much poorer outcome than somebody who is taking their medications. And we see those patients. They come back in three or four months later. The stent that they had inserted in one of their coronary arteries has clogged off because they stopped taking the blood thinner. Their blood pressure is out of control. You know, they're coming in with a hypertensive crisis because their blood pressure is too high. We see that all the time. We see patients who have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease who come in who can't afford their puffers. And so they have an exacerbation of their COPD. And instead of having their puffer, now they're going to stay in the intensive care unit um, on BiPAP to assist their breathing, or they're in the hospital for four or five days while we get them weaned off oxygen. 
I would argue that Canada cannot afford to not have a pharmacare program because the cost of that repeat heart attack, the cost of that exacerbation of COPD and subsequent hospital stay and ICU stay is much higher than the cost of the medications that would have present, prevented it in the first place. We will always have people who won't buy the, pick up their medications for one reason or another, but we could greatly reduce that burden of disease if people had reliable cross-country coverage for the medications that they need to keep them healthy. Well, you certainly have an informed perspective on this, and uh, we've had you on the program before, and I hope we have you again. Uh, it's a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I'm more than happy to talk to you. Okay, we'll be calling. Dr. Margaret Fraser is a family doctor and an emergency physician in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. A reminder, next hour, we're going to be talking about the life and legacy of Brian Mulrooney, who also had a connection to Nova Scotia, among other places in the country. He died this past week at the age of 84 years old. Steve Pakin is a veteran political broadcaster. He's covered Brian Mulrooney. He's interviewed him many times. Uh, he'll be joining us to take questions if you have them or comment on your stories. We're looking for your reflections on the life and times of Brian Mulrooney. Our number, 888-416-8333. You can get in the queue now for the Ask Me Anything, which starts in about 40 minutes. It's also the number uh, if you want to weigh in on today's topic for the first 90 minutes. How does the cost of medication affect the choices you're making? And can Canada afford a national universal pharmacare plan? You just heard from Dr. Fraser. Her perspective is we can't not afford a national pharmacare plan for the reasons that, that she stated. one 416 Bill Stewart is in Victoria, British Columbia. Hi, Bill. Hi, Ian. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thanks for calling. Can, uh, can you afford all the medications that, that you need? Well, okay. I'm uh, I'm a bit of a, a bit of an odd case, I guess. Um, I I'm on provincial disability. Uh, for, fortunate to be on the disability, I have a number of health issues, and uh, I've um, over the years uh, I've had a lot of issues with a number of pharmaceuticals, and I use medical cannabis at this point because it's uh, it, it except for when things are if I have extreme pain or something like that. It it basically works for managing my mm -hmm. symptoms, and it's um, it I I can. I, it, none of it's covered, of course, and so I can. I managed to be able to pay for it out of my, uh, like, out of my disability. I, uh, my my three main costs are, are are rent, food, and and basically my medicine. And I'm I managed to get through it, mm -hmm. like get through the month. I've got a, you know, a, 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 it's a it's a little expensive than that. And uh, the so so for me, like, just particularly listening to some of the stories of the people who were talking before, like, I feel kind of kind of lucky compared to a lot of people. But uh, the the the, the, the thing I wanted to say, like the the, the with what they're, they're introducing now, it's you know it's really good news. Like the I have I don't suffer from diabetes, but I have friends who do, and I know the I know like the the problems that they go through. So they have the medication available to them now, and making contraceptives available, the accessibility and that how like the the burden that that's going to take off a lot of people. Like that's you know it's definitely a positive move forward. Mm -hmm. And if they are if you know if these are the first steps in moving into a universal uh you know pharmacare of some kind it's it's it, i think it's definitely better for the country because i i know myself personally i have done i have ended up in situations where i had you know i had something going on and if i if i ended up in the emergency room because i didn't i didn't anticipate it and, and deal with it properly or, or you know and and so the 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 like the idea of the 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 amount of tax dollars mm -hmm. that are going to be spent into it, it's a preventative, proactive way of yeah. spending it and preventing spending a lot more money down the road, I think, because yeah. 
you know, for like like a prescription, a month's prescription is a lot cheaper than an emergency room visit. Yeah, yeah. Bill, uh, thank you very much for your perspective. Thanks for calling in. Oh yeah, yeah, you're welcome. All right, our next caller is also in British Columbia. Cheryl Taylor is in Comox. Hi, Cheryl. Oh, hi, Ian. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for calling. Uh, are you able to afford your medications? Well, I'm actually calling about my daughter's situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, She has been diagnosed with chronic migraine and lived for many years on a disability income because of that. It's no longer on that. She's um, managing to work. But one of the things that's happened over the last few years is that there's been um, great strides made in migraine um, medications. So chronic migraine is 15 or more days of migraine per month. So they're wow. not just headaches. Yeah. So so and, let's just stop um, for a second there, Cheryl, and, yeah. and explain to people like me who don't really understand that. I know uh, a couple of people who get migraines. One is a colleague here in the newsroom. So every once mm-hmm, in a while, mm-hmm. she'll get this debilitating symptom. Yes. But it's, 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 you know, rarely she's able to function at her kind of high pressure job other than that. But chronic migraines, you were saying that's 15 or more migraines a month? That's right, and that's what what GPs require to diagnose Mm -hmm. uh, chronic migraine and a neurologist. And uh, 2% of Canadians, or 760,000 Canadians, suffer with migraine. Mm -hmm. And they're not just headaches, they're chronic disabilities. And, you know, the World Health Organization suggests they're as disabling as being a quadriplegic, psychotic, or in the terminal stage of cancer in what their disability is. And they're Mm -hmm. very, very undervalued around that, around the length or the amount of disability. Mm -hmm. So in Canada, we have these new medications that have been approved. And very similar to what some of your other callers have said, you know, we've watched our daughter have to go through years of proving that her migraine is severely disabling. And then her very supportive doctors, of course, have to go through what your, um, what your doctor uh, on, your mm-hmm. best doctor was just talking about, making application to get special authority. So in BC, it's called special authority. Now, the new medications, which are antibody medications that have been developed specifically for migraine, Mm -hmm. cost $600 a month. So, um, for many people, including us, that has been, you know, we paid for some of them. My daughter's tried to pay for some of them, but it just becomes untenable for a, you know, a young woman who is trying to make her way in the, um, She's 30, 32 years old, mm-hmm. make her way in the world to cover that without any coverage. And currently, um, they've just become covered in BC. But again, for many people, you have to go through this two to three year process. In the meantime, people are not able to go to work, not mm-hmm. able to manage their lives. It's quite debilitating. And the other part to this, um, I think as well, is the cautionary tale around coverage, you know, when that's taken over, however that looks, is that um, another one of these wending systems is that for many people with chronic illness, it takes, a, you know, quite a... Um, quite a lot of work to figure out the recipe of medications that are going to work for people. So, for instance, some people need the antibody medication, but they may also need Botox, which has also been 
prescribed as mm-hmm. something that benefits people with migraine, and they may need other medications. But yeah. part of the issue is that in some provinces, they'll only cover one. So if you're somebody who needs both, then you make your choice. I Okay, I'm covered by this, but I can't afford this. And Botox is similarly, it'll cost you six or $700 a month. Mm-hmm. And so Again, you know, when you're looking at a national pharmacare program that has the benefit of being able to do bulk purchase pricing for mm-hmm. this and offer support to, you know, when I look at the number of people who are affected by this in Canada and how that must impact their work, yep. you know, our economy, the GDP, to me, it's a, it's a great investment yep. and I'm happy to pay taxes towards that. Right. So you know, sh- I've seen, um, yeah, we're, we're coming up to daughter. a break. We're coming up to a break. Yeah. So Cheryl, let me just ask you quickly. Um, so, but the, the, some good news here, I guess, right? The bottom line is right now, your daughter's medications are paid for by the province? Just paid for. So okay. we've been going through this for 12 years now yeah. and they are just covered now, right. which is fantastic. Yeah. There's a few other ones coming up as well, but okay. but they need to be covered. They yeah. should be covered under a formulary so that, you know, everybody can access what they need. Okay, let's leave it there. Thank you very much for sharing your family and your daughter's story. Thanks. Thanks for bringing this to the front. Appreciate it. Let's take a quick look at some of the reaction we're getting at cbc.ca slash aircheck, and I invite you to connect with us that way. Leslie Thompson is in Edmonton. As a type 1 diabetic, I'm frustrated with the Alberta government's plan to opt out of the National Pharmacare program. Pharmacare could alleviate the financial burden to families, ensuring access to necessary medications without sacrificing other essentials. Andrew Han is in Toronto. He says, I work in a hospital as an oncology pharmacist and we have cancer patients who receive chemotherapy in hospital, which is covered by the government, but the same patient, if they received an oral anti-cancer medication, might not be covered. The discrepancy must be addressed by a universal public single-payer pharmacare program. And Marilyn Hay in Kitchener, Ontario, says universal pharmacare is the best deal for Canadians. Economically, as well as good health, will have a profound positive impact on hospital budgets. Well, that's it for the CBC News Network edition of the program. It continues on CBC News Network with Rosemary Barton Live. Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Hour 2 of Cross Country Checkup. We are live on CBC Radio and we have roughly 30 minutes left in our main topic. Coming up on our Ask Me Anything, we're reflecting on the life and legacy of the former Prime Minister, Brian Mulroney. Steve Pakin is a longtime journalist and broadcaster who met the former Prime Minister many times. And if you have a story to share about Brian Mulroney or a question about his time in politics... You can start calling us now at 1-888-416-8333. You can text us as well, 226-758-8924. If you're interested in talking about the former prime minister and speaking with Steve Pakin, we will keep a list of uh, your questions and we'll get back to you. And uh, we might actually, because there's so much interest in this topic of the former prime minister, we might go to Steve a little earlier uh, than usual. Normally, our Ask Me Anything starts at the 
bottom of the hour, but uh, we're just kind of assessing right now whether to go a little earlier. We'll do that based on how many early calls we get from you. So you have the power to control the format of this program. Our main question today on the show is, are you able to afford your medications? Can Canada afford a national universal pharmacare plan, something the NDP hopes that the federal government does? And they took a first step, although it's a long journey beyond this first step, but a first step in terms of uh, promising to cover some contraceptive drugs and some diabetes drugs. All right. Um, We've talked about the Pharmacare bill in terms of its details, but let's talk about the political context that led to this. Danielle Belland is a professor of political science and director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada, and he is in Montreal. Hi. Hi, good afternoon. This deal came about because of an agreement between the federal liberals and the NDP opposition. The deadline to produce some sort of pharmacare plan was this past Friday. It had already been delayed once. How much political pressure was there for the government to come up with something this time around? Well, I think there was strong political pressure because, you know, the the liberals look at the polls and they see that they are really far behind the conservatives and they don't want uh, an election, a federal election anytime soon. So I think that the idea of striking a deal with the NDP on pharmacare was really urgent. Originally, the the original deal, which was signed in March 2022, uh, stated that uh, a, a bill on pharmacare uh, should have been introduced by the end of 2023. But they missed that deadline, and Jack Singh gave them uh, a couple more months to come up um, uh, with a bill, and they finally reached an agreement and presented, tabled the bill. The bill was tabled on Thursday by Mark Holland, the federal health minister, so on February 29th, so just one day before the, the, the actual deadline. And so you have this deal between the federal liberals and the NDP to, among other things, as you point out, avoid an election for two parties that don't want an election right now. The party that would love an election right now is the federal conservatives doing very well in the polls. And and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh says he thinks the conservative party would actually dismantle this bill if they were elected. Uh, Conservative leader Pierre Polyev was asked by reporters on Thursday if he would indeed do that, if he would dismantle the deal, and he didn't respond directly. What do you make of the conservative response? Well, I think it's a prudent uh, approach, in part because if you actually read the bill, which is a very short bill, Bill C-64, right, the the Pharmacare Act, it's, it's, it's a very short bill and it lacks detail. So it's not a detailed framework for uh, uh, universal Medicare in this country. Uh, it outlines a few broad principles, but most of it is about basically stating that we need to con- convey experts and to design an actual plan. <laughs> so we don't know how this would be financed. Uh, we don't know the relationship between, you know, uh, um, the, the, the pharmaceutical in- industry, or at least the, the private insurance coverage that people already have and, 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 and what the new plan will do. Uh, there, there are so many gaps, as uh, André Picard said earlier, that uh, right now opposing this bill is opposing really something that is in large part a blank canvas rather than a very concrete and detailed plan. 
We're here live with Daniel Balland, a professor of political science and director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. And our question today on cross-country checkup, are you able to afford your medications? Can Canada afford a national pharmacare plan? You can call us at one 888 or go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Daniel, uh, there are millions of people in this country who don't have a PharmaCare plan, but there are even more who have some sort of plan, uh, for the most part, through work. Do you think this is a topic that will make a significant difference at the polls? It could if uh, they can actually implement uh, the, 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 what we already know concretely about the plan, which is, uh, you know, covering uh, medication for uh, diabetes and contraceptives. So if we can actually implement something before the next federal elections, that uh, might be good politically for both the liberals and the NDP. Although there is always the trick for the NDP of claiming credit for a bill and for policies that uh, really uh, are introduced by the government. Mm-hmm. Huh? So, mm-hmm. um, So that's an issue for the NDP. But I think that their hope is that they can actually have something concrete for people um, that will be implemented or at least very close to implementation by the time we have the next federal elections, which provides a further incentive for them and the NDP to keep working together to postpone these elections so that uh, they can implement something by then. Governing in Canada, particularly with a minority government, is at least a two-level chess game. So you're dealing with the parties in Parliament, but you're also dealing with the provinces. And, and we've already seen pushback from Alberta and Quebec to the idea of national universal pharmacare. How much of a challenge could these provincial negotiations be for the federal Liberals? This is a major challenge because you cannot do this without the provinces and the territories. Uh, so um, th- this is, uh, again, uh, we don't have uh, the details about how this thing will be financed and who will pay for what. And uh, coverage, the relationship between pro- existing private coverage and um, public coverage. So there are a lot of questions, lingering questions uh, in general uh, about how this system will work. But more specifically, there are questions about how it will work in the context of federalism. And yeah, there's pushback from some provinces already, Alberta and Quebec, but other provinces are also, you know, just waiting to see, like Ontario, they will wait to see how this will actually work. Uh, And I think this could lead to uh, long negotiations and, frankly, contentious negotiations because there's a lot of money at stake. Danielle, it's uh, fantastic uh, speaking with you and getting your analysis. Thank you very much for speaking with us. You're most welcome. Take care. Daniel Belland, uh, Professor of Political Science and Director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Montreal, and he is in Montreal. And coming up in uh, sometime around 10 or 20 minutes, we've not made the decision yet exactly when this is going to start, but we do know we're going to be talking about the life and legacy of Brian Mulroney. And we do know that Steve Pakin will be here to respond to your questions and stories and tell us a few of his own stories. Our number 1-888-416-8333, or you can text us for the AMA, 226-758-8924. In the meantime, uh, we're getting great uh, stories, great insight from people on the National Pharmacare bill announced this past week. And our specific question for the remainder of this portion of the show, are you able to afford your medications? Can we afford as a country a national pharmacare plan? And uh, let's go to the phones again. Jesse McQuay is in Waterloo, Ontario. Hi, Jesse. 
Hey, Ian, how's it going? It's going really well. How do you feel about uh, having medications covered in, in a national pharma care program? Um, so one thing I haven't heard a whole lot about today is uh, mental health. I know mm-hmm. there is a lot of stigma around mental health and, and some mental health medications, but I just wanted to call in and say um, I have you know OCD and um, also depression and anxiety, and so I take some medication for that. I take an antidepressant and an antipsychotic. Um, and I'm actually just in between jobs right now. So current, like before, I was covered with benefits. And yesterday, I went. it was the first time that I went into the pharmacy without a job. And I found out it was about $300 a month. Um, now, I know that's not as much as some of your other callers, but it's mm-hmm. enough when you're not working. And so I said to the pharmacist, oh, can I just get, you know, the generic kind? And he said, actually, for this one pill, we actually don't don't have it. Like, it mm-hmm. doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, man, that's... That's unfortunate. So um, I do think that just with the stigma around mental health, I know that it's a lot of it's things that a lot of um, us don't necessarily talk about. But I, you know, I have read that I think antidepressants or maybe it's mental health medication is one of the largest, um, you know, categories of pills out there. And I do think that there's a lot of Canadians that either are, you know, suffering from this or are affected by it. So that to me is very important. Jesse, this program wouldn't be anywhere near as relevant a program as it is uh, unless people like you call in. I so appreciate that you're doing this. Uh, and, and so let's talk a little bit more about all of this. Uh, $300 a month is less than some other people are talking about, yeah. but it's still a lot of money, obviously. And so what does that mean for you and your budget right now? So currently, I mean, because I had been working, um, you know, I'm 41, so I've been working for a long time. So I do have a lot of savings, but obviously I was, you know, I'm putting that, you know, towards investments or rent or RRSPs or that kind of stuff. So, I, you know, in the short term, it's definitely possible. I think longer term, it would be a question of, you know, if I'm out of work, then am I looking at sacrificing other things? How does that look? It, it is possible. Like, I don't want to, you know, stand here and say this is 100% not possible because it, it's life-giving. Um, but again, I just think, I think because we don't talk a lot about mental health, mm-hmm. I, um, I was a little bit surprised that maybe, um, and I, maybe I haven't done enough reading, but that Canada didn't, in the announcement, didn't sort of talk about mental health or, or sort of say, oh, we're going to think about this. I just think that, you know, the stats from CAMH are that I think it's one in, in two uh, Canadians by the time they're 40 either have or have had a mental illness. Obviously, you know, I would think that then people would need medication for many of those, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's very important. So a lot of people aren't willing to talk about mental health, as, as you point out quite rightly, um, and therefore a lot of us don't understand what's involved with this. Um, mm. What would the impact be if you didn't take your medication? Oh, geez. <laughs> so I have OCD. Um, oh, I mean, I could you could do a whole show about OCD. OCD mm-hmm. is a crazy disorder. Um, but there's many, there's probably 15 or 20 different subtypes of OCD. And um, for me, I have probably 10-ish subtypes. So I do, I do the hand washing, which many people have, but I also have other ones like, you know, that are um, sort of maybe less known. I do a lot of the counting, a lot of the, uh, you know, um, you know, things need to be perfect and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. Probably what you've seen on some movies. But um, geez, like not to get, you know, too, too dark, but when I was, um, you know, at my worst, I, I wasn't leaving my apartment because it would take me you know, three to four hours to like get ready to leave the apartment because mm-hmm. I had to, you know, wash my hands a, a, an exact certain way or I needed to put on my clothes a certain way or I needed to, you know, and, and really um, in, in terms of OCD, it's the, there's a gold standard. You, you're supposed to take medication and you're also supposed to do therapy sort of hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And what they say is for OCD is that taking 
medication for OCD is like, imagine yourself as an alcoholic. And if you're trying to stop drinking, the medication allows you to stop drinking living at home. Whereas if you didn't take medication, it's like you're an alcoholic trying to stop drinking and living at a bar. Mm. Right? So wow. it's like it takes those, those sort of thoughts and they mm-hmm. just turn down the volume. So it's, it's honestly, it is life-giving. It's, it's incredibly important. And there must be people, needless to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, there must be people who can't afford that medication and are suffering for it, right? Well, that's the thing. My thing is, is that honestly, it's hard enough to, to step forward and talk about this. Like, you know, it's, it's hard for me to call in today and say, yeah. I have OCD and depression and anxiety. So think about people who maybe don't have that strength or, or courage or who or they're in a different place. Like where I was two or three years ago, I would have never been able to call in, into this. Mm-hmm. But the pills allow me to do that. So if, if, if mental health is so pervasive, then let's actually help people. Let's say, hey, like you have the courage to, to address this, to ask for help. Okay, let's, let's bump you up here. Like mm-hmm. let's really give you a, a shot at, at going against this. I am so happy that you called in and, you know, we'll keep your name and number because we should do a show on OCD. I heard a, a podcast with a hockey player who, who was dealing with OCD and he was saying everywhere he goes, people will say, yeah, I got a little bit of OCD too. And he says, yeah. like, no, he goes, you know, they'll say, you know, my shirts at home, I have to have them in a certain order. And he says, no, no, like exactly. with me, with me, I got to suddenly go home and completely you know, reorganize something in my house. What you have is not, not you, but the people that this guy talks to is not OCD. It is so misunderstood. And, and yeah. people like you having the sort of willingness to call help us understand it better. So, Jesse, thank you very much. I appreciate the platform and I love the show. So thank you so much. We are live here on Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanneman Singh in Vancouver. We're going to take one more call on our uh, story of uh, our, our topic of the day. Are you uh, able to afford your medications? Can Canada afford a national universal pharmacare plan? Uh, the reason we're taking one more call is we're going to start our AMA early. Steve Pakin, political journalist, is ready to go. Uh, we want to hear your reflections and questions, if you have them, about the legacy of uh, former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, who passed passed away on Thursday. And so 1-888-416-8333 or cbc.ca slash aircheck or text us at 226-758-8924. But before we go there, let's go to Chesapeake, Nova Scotia. Doug Bethune has called us up. Hi, Doug. Oh, good afternoon, Ian. Are nice you? To talk to you. Yeah, really Very nice well, to talk to you. you. Yeah. And, and how are you able to afford your medications, Doug? I can afford my medications, but not as well as I used to be able to when I was working and covered under a group plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Pharmacare plan, uh, Nova Scotia Pharmacare, uh, it doesn't really cover everything, and there are some medications which, uh, which uh, you know, I have to purchase myself. But um, I'm able to pay for them, but not as well as I used to be able to. Um, can I ask you, and, and, and again, as always, you tell me if, if this is too personal, but can I ask you how much you, you, you spend on your medications? Well, um, I'd rather not say sure. because I absolutely. don't want to come across as being a crybaby. Yeah, no, uh, listen, you know, I'm absolutely. I'm very fortunate. Yep. You know, I'll be 80 years old in a month and I'm still working. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a consulting company mm-hmm. that it's just me and my self and I, mm-hmm. and uh, I do forensic investigations, but I'm not applying for a job yep. on CBC, but <laughs> that, 
<laughs> the point is, uh, the Pharmacare program, I, I'm just sorry that it was brought forth politically, but uh, it seems to be well accepted. But the trouble I have with Well, well let, me, let me interrupt you and just ask you that. You, you are not happy, I think you said that it was brought forth politically. What is, why is that? Well, to me, it seemed to be a, a reaction to the polls and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, by both parties. Uh, the Liberals and the NDP, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, look, I don't care who would bring it forward, but when I look at it, it's very short on detail, mm-hmm. and it's also very long on uh, applying, and uh, it's also very restrictive, and I think myself, if we really wanted a complete uh, pharmacare program in Canada, there are as many multitudes of diseases and health issues in this country. I mean, they're innumerable. And, uh, you know, to restrict uh, any pharmacare program to just uh, a few illnesses, to me, is very restrictive. And I would think uh, that uh, the the medications required for all kinds of health issues – for Canadians, it should be such so that when those medications are purchased, there should be a full tax refund on the money that people spend on the medication. Mm-hmm. And um, in, instead of uh, only giving a partial tax refund in your income tax, and I'm yeah. talking both federally and provincially, yeah, you know, and I think that the provinces would sign on to something like that mm-hmm. rather than such a restrictive program that we have now. Most of my relatives are in the medical field; they're doctors and lab techs and so on. And as as uh, Dr. Fraser pointed out in your program, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are people trying to get medication, serious illnesses, mm-hmm. and they just simply can't afford them. Yeah, and and if there was a tax reduction or a, a money back uh, full uh, income tax deduction on what they spend on medication medication and 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 maybe yep. uh, and maybe that approach i think would be more beneficial to a whole wide range of illnesses and Canadians right across this country. Yeah, well, so that's you know a, 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 an interesting notion, um, complex, right? Do you do you just not charge people? Do you give them a tax credit? Do you give them uh, the ability to claim it on their tax? Depends on how much they make. You know, lots of economic questions, but the theme of what you're saying, I hear loud and clear, and I appreciate you calling. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. A good program and a great springboard for a, for a more comprehensive plan that would be proactive rather than reactive. All right. Thank you. It's it's time for Ask Me Anything, the life and legacy of Brian Mulroney. You have to have ideas that will benefit Canada in the longer haul. Usually an idea that's going to do that is unpopular. And as you fight for it, you'll make yourself unpopular. But your country will benefit in the longer term passionate leader who loved Canada very deeply, uh, a mentor and a friend. He had the courage to do big things. He was incredibly generous in advising me and our government on the renegotiation of NAFTA. 
I think that he would have uh, wanted to be remembered as a happy warrior, and I think he was. One word that's come up over and over again over the last few days to describe Brian Mulroney is consequential. During his nine-year run as Prime Minister, he won the largest majority government in Canadian history. He took a far, firm stand against racial apartheid in South Africa, introduced a national goods and services tax, and he saw the successful passage of NAFTA, expanding Canada's ties with the U.S. Mulroney died this past week at the age of 84, and we'd like to know how you are remembering him. Political journalist Steve Pagan is here live to chat and share stories about the late Brian Mulroney. Steve is the host of TV Ontario's The Agenda with Steve Pagan. And over his career, he's interviewed Mulroney several times. You can talk about your memories or ask Steve questions. Call us now at 1-888-416-8333 or you can text us 226-758-8924. Steve Pagan, thanks for joining us. Ian, great to be with you. How are you today? I'm doing really well. So you've covered Brian Mulroney. You've interviewed him before. Uh, let's go back to your first meeting with him. Cub reporter Steve Pakin. What do you remember about that? Surprisingly enough, a lot. And that <laughs> I say surprisingly enough because it was 42 years ago. And I think I was all of 22 years old. Brian Mulroney was giving a speech. He's, he's not yet the leader of the party. He's giving a speech in Oakville at a fundraiser for a member of parliament named Otto Jelinek, who some of your listeners may remember, was an Olympic figure skater. And and I'll tell you something, Ian, uh, the guy just knocked your socks off. The guy was an incredible speaker. I don't think I'd ever seen anybody speak as well or captivate a crowd. And you got to remember, like much of my coverage at the time was of kind of former Ontario Premier Bill Davis, who was not a great speaker, or the mayor of the day of Toronto, Art Eggleton, who was not a great speaker. And in comes Brian Mulroney, and wow, it was pretty incredible. Uh, I remember having a little scrum with him after the speech was over, and my first question, while not brilliant, I thought was useful. I said, how do you pronounce your last name? Mm -hmm. And the reason I remember asking this question is because his answer was very funny. He said, it's Mulroney, not Mulroney. We lost an O on the boat on the way over from (laughs) Ireland. So there you go. Yeah. Um, Listen, there's going to be lots of room here over the the 40 minutes, our extended Ask Me Anything, for people to say how they felt about him. He is a guy who won two majority governments and, you know, the first one, it just seems so popular from coast to coast. But he left his progressive conservative party. Kim Campbell took over a very brief time as prime minister and and the conservatives won only two seats in the House of Commons. So they're, you know, it's a complicated legacy. and, And so we'll hear from people who have, uh, you know, sort of negative things to say about him, and there's room for that too. But Steve, sure. we got to we got to remind people who aren't as old as us. You talk about his ability to give a great speech, also just such charisma and such a beautiful voice. Well, that's the thing, and I remember. I mean, you mentioned in your introduction that I've had the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Mulroney many times over the years, which is true. But the things that I really remember are not the interviews. The things I remember are the phone calls. And I was one of, I guess, a large number of journalists who he would occasionally catch off guard by calling himself. And I remember one time I I did a book about 25 years ago called The Life, The Seductive Call of Politics. And I thought, Mr. Mulroney, you are a poster child for that subtitle. So, I mean, because you (laughs) have really, he really felt that seductive call of politics. And so... Uh, I I managed to get a hold of him. I did an interview with him. 
Uh, the book came out. <laughs> he obviously read the book because one day at work, it's 5.30 on a Friday afternoon. I'm staying late at work to get some stuff done. And all of a sudden, the phone rings. And this would have been in the days when you did not really have call display. So mm-hmm. I didn't know who it was. I pick up the phone. Hello, Mr. Pakin. I can't do the <laughs> voice. But you know you know that voice. Everybody yeah. listening to us now knows that voice. And of course, so I immediately said, Mr. Mulrooney, what do I owe the honor of this phone call? And he basically spent the next 20 minutes going through chapter and verse of some of the things in the book that I wrote that he didn't love. <laughs> and that was okay. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad he reached out. It was a good phone call. Yeah, you know, you captured two things that Rosemary Barton, our chief political correspondent, touched on on Thursday during the live coverage on CBC News Network. She, too, got a call. In her case, it was when she was getting hammered on social media. As Rosie said, shockingly, she was getting hammered on social media. Um, and so she said that Brown Mulroney gave her a call out of the blue and and sort of like, you know, raised her spirits. She also said that the call went on for a long time. <laughs> like she said it fondly, but she said, yeah, this guy can talk. Um, but you know what I've heard, Steve, is so many stories of people who got those calls. So in your case, it sounds like a conversation about what you had put in your book. But in many cases, and I think you've heard these stories as well, politicians, uh, journalists who were having rough times, all of a sudden would get a call from Brian Mulroney, uh, people that he didn't have direct connections with, and he he would be there to kind of give them moral support. I, I don't think a lot of former prime ministers do that. I agree, and I would put myself on that list because the last conversation I had with Brian Mulroney was about two, two and a half months ago, and again, just called me out of the blue, did not expect to get this phone call, and he called just to say, Steve, I've heard your mother just died, and mm. I wanted to pass along my condolences, wow. and we spent the next five, six, seven minutes talking about my mom, and you know, he didn't know my mother, uh, but he knew me, and he knew that the impact of her death on me would be obviously significant. And he just wanted to reach out and and talk about it. And of course, you know, he'd experienced the loss of parents um, at this stage of his life. So he was able to impart some good advice. And and I'll tell you another thing, Ian, I knew that would be the last time I'd ever speak to him mm. because you could you could hear in his voice that he was frail. And and, you know, I had the same feeling The last time I talked to Bill Davis, I had the same feeling the last time I talked to former Prime Minister John Turner, who was a great friend of Mulroney's, incidentally. And, you know, if you talk to these guys a lot, you can kind of tell, boy, this this feels like it's going to be the last time. And of course, in Mr. Mulroney's case, it was. Very poignant. But let's back up for a moment. He did not know your mother, but he called you anyway. I knew your mother, Marnie Pakin, a great woman who achieved a lot, uh, two fantastic sons that she has, and uh, my condolences to you. And, uh, you know, I can't say enough good things about about your mother, Marnie. Uh, we are live here with Steve Pakin. In a few minutes, I'm going to go to the phone lines to take your calls. Some calls already rolling in. It's our Ask Us Anything, Ask Steve Anything, really. You can call us at one 416 Steve, you said an interesting thing a moment ago about uh, John Turner. I think you said that that John Turner and, uh, and Brian Mulrooney were friends, if I heard you correctly. What's interesting about that is they were fierce, fierce rivals politically. Brian Mulrooney, I would say, 
uh, strategically, but kind of, you know, eviscerated uh, John Turner in debates, beat him in two elections. Um, but but talk a little bit, because a lot has been said about this, about that division between kind of professional um, adversarial relationships and, and personal friendship. Well, I'm glad you made the distinction because that's the key here. Yes, these two fought two titanic battles against each other. Uh, the 1984 election, which you earlier referenced, where Mr. Mulroney won the biggest majority in Canadian history. And then four years later, again, the so-called free trade election, where Mr. Turner looked like he was going to get a modicum of revenge. He had the better debate in that election campaign, uh, but the result was the same majority for Mr. Mulroney. People may not realize, but these two guys went way back to the 1950s in Montreal. Right. John Turner is a very young lawyer in his early 30s in Montreal practicing law. Uh, Brian Mulrooney is, um, you know, coming up, trying to become a lawyer, eventually gets himself a job as an executive assistant on Parliament Hill. And in and they palled around a bit. <laughs> and in the early 1960s, I guess uh, Mr. Turner wins his first election in 1962. And at that time, Mr. Mulrooney is working for a conservative cabinet minister in the John Diefenbaker government. And one day. Mr. Mulrooney is having lunch with a buddy and in the parliamentary dining room, and he looks across the floor and he sees John Turner. And he says to his friend, come on, let's go over and say hello. And his friend says, why bother? He's a liberal. <laughs> Mr. Mulrooney says back to his friend, I'll tell you why, because he's going to be prime minister someday. So come on, let's go. So he knew in 1962 what eventually happened in 1984 wow. was that John Turner was going to become the prime minister of the country. I, like, if you if you can stand it, I got a couple of more examples of this. You know, uh, I think in <laughs> in the uh, I guess a few years later, uh, Mr. Mulroney is out of politics at this point. He's working in the private sector, and and there is a great scandal in the country called the Gerda Munsinger affair, which nobody <laughs> under the age of 60 will know anything about. <laughs> Suffice to say, Gerda Munsinger was a German. People thought she was a spy, but it turns out she was having an affair with a Diefenbaker-era cabinet minister, and the news emerged uh, during the time Lester Pearson was prime minister, and it became a national security scandal. And Brian Mulroney, being the fan of you know politics and debate in the House that he was, he called up John Turner and he said, I got to get in to hear some of this debate. Can you get me in? <laughs> and sure enough, John Turner went down, <laughs> down to the front door, got him into the visitor's gallery, got him in, and then they went out for drinks afterwards. And that happened again when Mr. Turner was a cabinet minister in Pierre Trudeau's government later in the 1960s. The two men, Mr. Mulrooney's a corporate executive at this point, uh, the two men find themselves in Vancouver, where you are, uh, they're there at the same time for two different events. They discover that they're both there and they, they they repair after the evening is over to John Turner's hotel room and have drinks till the wee small hours of the morning. Hmm. So these guys knew each other well. That's the point. They knew each other well. They were very friendly acquaintances uh, and stayed so even despite the two bruising election campaigns they fought against each other. Yeah. And on Thursday, Jean Chrétien, the prime minister, obviously, who succeeded Brian Mulrooney and briefly Kim Campbell um, talked about, use the uh, a hockey metaphor, right? And he talked about uh, with Brian Mulrooney, you could fight on the ice, but you could have beers after the game. Very much uh, in at least the second yeah. part was probably um, literal. <laughs> the first part, meta he, metaphorical. We're talking let, to let Steve. Let me jump on that if I can, Ian, okay, just for sure. a quick second here, because think for a second. Think if you can imagine this, that let's say Pierre Polyev wins the next election. 
Can you imagine him offering an ambassadorship to Justin Trudeau? I think a lot of people might have a hard time with that. But after Brian Mulroney bested John Turner for the second time in 1988, Mr. Turner retired a couple of years later, and Brian Mulroney got a message through to him saying, let me make you our ambassador to Italy. And Mr. Turner thanked him profusely, but turned him down. Then Brian Mulroney came back at him and said, okay, I'll give you Italy and the Vatican. Mr. Turner was a staunch Catholic who read the Bible every day. And Mr. Turner again said, I'm really grateful, but I, you know, I've got a, I'm in my early 60s. I've got a few years left to earn a living to make some good money on Bay Street, so I'm going back to Bay Street. But that's the kind of guy Brian Mulroney was. He didn't want to see a friend and political adversary you know, humiliated and therefore was content, was happy to offer him uh, that job of representing Canada in an important post. Uh, and I think that speaks volumes about him. You are the perfect guest, Steve, to have on this program. Steve Pakin, the political journalist with uh, TV Ontario, is with us for uh, the coming half hour as we ask those of you who are listening and watching, what are your uh, memories of uh, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, and uh, what do you feel about uh, what he achieved and, and his legacy? Our phone number is one eight 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 four one six eight three three three. You can also reach us at cbc.ca slash aircheck. Our first caller is Kim Wicks, who's in St. John, New Brunswick. And Kim, I recognize that last name. How are you? I'm extremely well, Ian, and thanks so much for the opportunity to chime in on such a, what I feel is a really positive discussion um, in terms of celebrations rather than mourning. Mm -hmm. um, so my father was Ben Wicks, um, who was a political cartoonist, and um for those of you that enjoy drawing or enjoy cartooning, I will say that the one thing my father loved was if there was something particularly special about someone's appearance that he could regularly draw. And that was Brian Mulroney's chin to his chagrin. <laughs> so a very square chin, and uh, I think my father was particularly delighted by that. My father had a great deal of respect for Brian and Mila, and uh, I know my mother, and, and he had a couple of dinners together for which we've got photos, and um, nothing but the dearest respect despite perhaps some of the cartoons that may have suggested his questioning around the GST and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but just to say, uh, honestly, uh, really grateful that you've uh, invited me in and happy to share other stories about my father and how he portrayed Trudeau and Clark and good heavens, he, he really had his heyday. Uh, he was uh, anyone that... Um, became leader uh, um, after 1999, uh, we should be grateful that uh, they missed my father because I have no idea what kind of uh, footage he would have found on their face. And God love uh, Jean Chrétien, who did suffer the unfortunate stroke that my mm -hmm. father did uh, uh, frequently draw. So anyway, just to say thank you so much for hosting this tonight and my condolences to the family and celebrate uh, what a fantastic person he was. And yeah. uh, thank you. 
And let's celebrate your dad a little bit because some people will remember him, but there may be younger people or people who didn't live in Canada. When you, when your father was really, the, the I would say, maybe the preeminent uh, political cartoonist in the country and uh, his his work uh, you know, was in newspapers, I think, daily. Uh, and it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. It was uh, satirical. It was whimsical. It was always on point. He passed away, I think, 20 years ago. Uh, but yeah. I, I love the fact that, uh, that you know, you're... Uh, reminding us about Ben Wicks. Uh, maybe a last word, Kim, from you, either about your dad or his relationship with Brian Mulroney or something that uh, that connected him to Brian Mulroney. So I think the thing that my dad found most attractive with Brian Mulroney, as people have spoken about so sincerely tonight, was his communication. Mm-hmm. And for my dad, it was all about communication. If you could walk into a room and have a conversation with someone um, ignoring, your, you know, your status uh, and so on and so forth, my dad was open to those conversations. And I know that he was very grateful for the number of conversations that he had with Mr. Mulroney and uh, will forever uh, you know, remember those in his passing. So thank you so much. I don't know, uh, given your father, the timing of your father's passing 20 years ago, if if much of his work or any of his work is is preserved on the internet. I hope it is. I encourage people to do a search, Ben Wicks, uh, because uh, as I say, he was an important part of the of the political landscape as a as a cartoonist. And Kim, thank you so much for calling in. No, my pleasure. Thanks for taking my call. We're live on CBC Radio. I'm Ian Hannah Mansing, and Steve Pakin is in. Uh, are you in Toronto, Steve? I'm actually in my hometown of Hamilton visiting my dad, who says hello, Ian. Okay, all right. And, I, yeah. And I, uh, Ben Wicks was a regular uh, appearer in the Hamilton Spectator, which I grew up with. So I well remember looking at his cartoons in our local newspaper all the time. Yeah, and for me, it was the Moncton Times transcript. And, and I think there might even have been a little window on the front page with Ben Wicks's uh, cartoons. So yeah, we have that uh, same memory. Hi back to your dad, by the way. And uh, and a reminder to people who are listening, we're live here on Cross Country Checkup, and we're interested in hearing your memories of uh, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. And look, it's, uh, you know, the day that someone prominent dies, or anyone dies, the day that they die, the day after they die, it's a time to uh, to be gentle and talk about uh Tributes uh, as time passes, particularly when somebody's involved in politics, there is absolutely room to talk more uh, critically. And and any prime minister is imperfect and has good things and bad things uh, uh, associated with their career. Jennifer Wade is calling from here in Vancouver, and uh, she wants to talk about one of the things for which uh, Mr. Mulroney has been uh, criticized about uh, often. Hi, Jennifer. Hello, Ian, and thank you for having me on. Yeah, you're welcome. I do, I do have two or three questions. Okay. I notice you ask people to be gentle. I think I would retort by asking people to be truthful. Yeah, I don't know if I ask people to be gentle. I was just saying that the day somebody dies or the day after uh, is a time certainly to be gentle, but we're, we're a few days into it. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. and so uh, in terms of being truthful, what, what are your questions? I think with the very flattering tributes coming in, mm-hmm. I have to ask, has no one read Stevie Cameron's excellent book on Mulroney? It's called On the Take, mm-hmm. and it describes the 
um, the, the awful corruption and greed that went on during, in the Canadian government during the Moroni, Moroni years. Mm-hmm. And, and didn't Mr. Harper have to set up an inquiry into the matter when he took office? Yes. And wasn't Moroni the only prime minister who sued his own people for a million dollars and got away with it? And, well, and why one. do we as Canadians distort history just because a man dies and it is being distorted? Yeah, well, so a couple of things. Uh, Steve Pagan just jumped in and pointed out that uh, the, the former prime minister won his lawsuit. Uh, so that that's interesting. Um, I don't know that we're distorting history. I, I mean, you're getting an opportunity to say what you're saying. The Stevie Cameron's book on the take was a bestseller. It's still out there. It's actually interesting. My dad said to me uh, a couple of days ago that he pulled it off his bookshelf. He read it when it came out and he, he had, uh, is rereading it right now. Uh, so all of that is out there. In in terms of history. And uh, and so, yeah, I, I hope we're not distorting it. Uh, Steve, uh, why don't you weigh in on, on uh, Jennifer's uh, perspective? Sure. Uh, I, I think it's worth pointing out that there were certainly a lot of people around Mr. Mulroney who got into trouble because when he became the prime minister, they took advantage of that. And, you know, some remember there was a senator at the time, Michelle Carter, who got into big trouble and was charged with crimes. Um I think to the extent that you can criticize Mr. Mulroney for all of that, it's that he, you know, he sort of, his view being a Quebecer was that you sort of got to, you know, what's the expression, you know, let boys be boys. And there was a certain amount of, of um, well, malfeasance that he probably tolerated from people that he knew in Quebec because, you know, they were taking advantage of the fact that their friend was in the prime minister's office. Uh, I, I think this is as good a time as any to talk about the Carl Heinz Schreiber business. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reality is that's that was an appalling lapse of judgment, and it shouldn't have happened. And I remember talking to Mr. Mulrooney about this, um, both on and off camera. And I think his, I think his response to that kind of thing was something like, you know, you show me the person who has lived a perfect life, and I'll show you a perfect a, a person who does not exist. Uh, he would he would be the he would ultimately be the first person to acknowledge that he really blew it in that circumstance. But I think one of the things that we're allowed to do at a time like this, and I think it's appropriate, is to put all of that in context. It's of course part of his record. It's of course nothing he can run away from. It happened. We are discussing it right now. But put it into context. Should those should those lapses in judgment overwhelm some of the, and you used this word earlier, Ian, overwhelm the consequential things that he did as prime minister of the country in back-to-back majority governments, the only other conservative leader in history besides Sir Johnny MacDonald to have done that. I mean, I would say no. I would say you got to put the whole record into context and not let the malfeasance overwhelm all of the other things that are also hugely important to remember. Yeah, thank you, uh, Steve. And Steve Pakin, who's live uh, in Hamilton. Let's go back to Jennifer Wade. And, and and what about that? So let's not ignore the malfeasance. Let's report it. Um, but let's not let it uh, blind us, perhaps, to uh, the entire legacy of Prime Minister Mulroney. Jennifer, what would you say to that? Well, I would disagree with putting the malfeasance on other people. Brian Mulroney's signature went down on the papers. 
And I think that, uh, you know, I, I think that it's not, I, I just fear that as young people are listening, let's tell them the truth. Let's let's not uh, make this an excessive, I mean, to hear Mr. Polly ever on, the, on describing Mulroney, uh, it, it was just so excessive, but he, he's not alone. It's coming in from everywhere, even on the program today. But I think we have to look at things as they are. And there was the good and the bad, and let's name both of them. Yeah, well, absolutely. And that's why uh, we're happy to have your call and happy to put it on the air. And I do uh, say to people, they can uh, look at, uh, you know, do the research. It is literally an internet search away. The Carl uh, Hans Schreiber situation where it's really complicated, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but I'll say part of it is that a payment was made to uh, Brian Mulroney after he was prime minister. And uh, it is uh, does many people do see that as a lapse in judgment, but people can see the story. They can see it, uh, you know, the full uh, legacy of Brian Mulroney, and that is part of it for sure. Uh, we're looking forward to hearing your perspective on this at one eight 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 four one six eight three three three. Before I go to the next call, uh, Steve, I, actually, I better check with you, but uh, I am right, right, that uh, the, the former prime minister did get a, admitted to getting a cash payment from uh, from Schreiber. In a paper bag in a hotel in New York. Yeah. And he, he, I mean, he shouldn't have done it. That's <laughs> that's pretty clear. But he did do it. Uh, he did. Stephen Harper, you're quite right. Called a public inquiry. Judge Oliphant was the head of the inquiry, looked at Mr. Mulroney and said what you did was inappropriate. That's true. All right. Let's go to our next call now. Angela Arinze is in Calgary. Hi, Angela. Hello. How are you remembering Brian Mulroney? I met the man one time. I was about 19 years old, and I was involved in youth parliament here in Alberta. And the pinnacle of my youth parliament experience was to attend national youth parliament in Ottawa. I was a critic on a bill, and it didn't go my way. We were meeting in the Senate chambers, and I was angry about what happened, so I kind of stomped out thinking I could get a breath of fresh air and calm down. (laughs) But when I got outside the House of Commons, I saw there was a small crowd gathered. So I asked what was going on, and everybody was waiting for a question period to end. So my buddy Dave and I joined the small group. And sure enough, Brian Mulrooney walks out. <laughs> and he starts shaking hands and asking people where they were from. Most of them seemed to be British tourists. But when he got to me, I was all of 19 and angry. And uh, never a conservative, but he wasn't real popular in Alberta anyway. He got to me and he said, uh, where are you from? I said, Alberta. He says, oh, I might have two or three friends left out there. (laughs) (laughs) But he had a good chuckle at me. And then while he was still holding my hand, I don't know what inspired me except youth and foolishness. But I asked him, uh, when's the election? This was in the wake of Tuna Gate and all sorts of scandals, and a lot of people were asking, but not while shaking the man's hand. (laughs) But anyway, he laughed at me again and smiled, and he said, "Ah, I'll have to ask Nicholas, who was just a baby at the time. (laughs) But he was very charming. But before I knew it, his security had moved me back about 30 feet. Yeah. I mean, charming and uh, and respectful, right? Of a nineteen-year-old who uh, you know is filled with the uh, 
hubris of, of uh, you know, being politically interested and being young and and you got to heckle him and, and make your exactly. point and then he moved on. Adele, thank you very much yep. for calling. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Angela, actually, I had your name wrong. I'm sorry. I'm looking ahead at our next caller, whose name is Adele. Adele Rizai is in Toronto. Hi, Adele. Hi, Ian and Steve. Um, thank you for taking my call. Um, thank you to Jennifer and for making that comment. However, um, I have also my own experience. I have never met um, Prime Minister um, Brian Moroni. Um, in 19... 19- 85, um, his government um, pulled me and my daughter, four-year-old daughter, out of uh, captivity uh, when I was held as prisoner of war by another country for crossing um, international borders. I didn't have passport or anything, but uh, his government brought me to Toronto. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I want to say thank you. And um, that kind of kindness and care. Uh, when I was in that situation, in fact, um, there were a number of countries like France or Sweden, United States, they all came to visit me and my child. Uh, I just picked Canada because the representative uh, gave a pen, you know, the one that has a Canadian flag on it. Mm-hmm. And he put it on my child's chest. And I felt in that place that I was no one, nowhere, nobody really knew. I felt belong. Mm-hmm. I felt belong. I I I felt hope. So, thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, later on, I um being coming from a political family, um, I was able to follow politicians in Canada. And I I I am a high school teacher, and I teach business studies. So I know that he was. Um, he was very instrumental for the free trade and also the GSD. And also one of the very, very good memories I have is how hard he works against apartheid. Mm-hmm. And I remember Barbara Fromm, CBC journalist, was the first one to interview Nelson Mandela. And I still remember that video. So thank you, Canada. Adele, some powerful memories, and I, of course, very much appreciate you you calling. So thank you very much. Our number here on Cross Country Checkup is one eight 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 four one six eight three three three. We probably have time for a couple more calls, and so if you'd like to tell us what your memories are of uh, Brian Mulrooney, what he means to you, um, and it. You know, it can be positive. It can be less uh, positive. We're here to to tell the whole story. Uh, please, uh, please give us a call. See if we can squeeze in a couple more calls. Catherine, I'm going to come to your call in just a moment. But before we do, let's go back to uh, to Steve Pakin, uh, who is in Hamilton. And Steve, um, take this in any direction you want. What, what else would you like to add to our conversation? That last call was incredibly powerful, and I think it, it I think it points to something we need to remember, and that is that Brian Mulroney was. He had a terrific record when it came to minorities, not only in this country, but around the world. Much has been said about his work to end apartheid in South Africa. You referenced it yourself in the introduction to this segment. Uh, Not only that, there was an apology to Japanese Canadians that came in in the Mulroney years for the way they were treated, interned in their own country during World War II. And I'd add one more to the list, and that is, you know, nowadays, 
Uh, I think it's fair to say the Jewish community in Canada feels a little under siege uh, for a bunch of reasons. And one thing Brian Mulroney did, he never he never sanctioned anti-Semitism. And, you know, he grew up in a province uh, which would have been, you know, 90 percent French Catholic at the time. And 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 anti-Semitism was a problem there, as it was in so many other places in Canada. And yet, for some reason, that was never part of his repertoire. He, in fact, uh, appointed Judge Jules Deschenes to head up uh, an inquiry into Nazi war criminals in Canada. And so I know the Jewish community felt very uh, secure and comforted when Brian Mulroney was the prime minister of the country. So uh, apropos of the phone call you just received, I thought it was useful to put that on the record as well. And apropos of the phone call we're about to go to right now, Catherine Lodge-Childs is in Vancouver. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Ian. It's actually Vancouver Island. Oh, Vancouver <laughs> Island. Yes. You know what? It says that in front of the notes. I just didn't read till the end, as I sometimes uh, <laughs> fail to do. Um, Catherine, uh, when you think of Brian Mulrooney, what do you remember? Uh, one of the most significant things, like I may have disagreed with him and some of his policies on a lot of things, but one thing I have to say is his uh, stance on uh, ad being anti-apartheid. He, if he hadn't, I honestly believe, if he hadn't stepped in and made the point and assisted with Nelson Mandela and what was going on there, we had already lost a significant leader in Stephen Biko. I don't know if uh, apartheid would still be continuing in South Africa because there wasn't a global push to get rid of it until... You know, Brian Mulroney stepped in and made it a made a point of doing so. Yeah. There's a lot of things that you could disagree with him on in regards to some of his policies and things he did in Canada, but the fact that he made a global significant change and went against a lot of leaders to do so, and that to me is highly significant of things he did as a person that participated in the anti-apartheid protests in the eight, early 80s and late 70s. No, what he did was uh, save lives, literally, and uh, made significant change and helped to, you know, continue on a country that has only done more and more for the global world, South Africa, since then. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it may be difficult for people to either... Um, appreciate this from the perspective of 2024, or maybe they just forget. But you had this country, South Africa, with this apartheid system, which was absurd and racist and absolutely unacceptable. And yet the world tolerated it. And leaders oh. like, you know, other conservative leaders like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher um, were, uh, you know, willing to accept it. And here you had Brian Mulroney, uh, also a conservative leader, but of a very small country um, and trying to kind of punch above its weight in terms of influence, who did not want to accept it and worked tirelessly to have that changed. Exactly. Like we were looking in a position where Stephen Biko was beaten to death in the jail cell of September 77. Nelson Mandela possibly could have met the same fate if uh, some if Mulroney in Canada hadn't stepped in and brought it to the world's attention that, no, this is wrong and this shouldn't be allowed to continue. And for that, you know, whether I disagree or agree with him, I consider his... Him being a prime minister and actually taking that step. And mm -hmm. like you said, pushing back against the larger powers that be in the world, i.e. the U.S. and U.K. at the time, was is highly significant and needs to be recognized truly for what it was. I believe uh, somebody said that 
in uh, when he travels to South Africa. He is admired mm-hmm. more so than probably any other Western leader that traveled there because of his actions then. Yeah, because Kath- of, you know, he brought forward Canada into that stance. Yeah, Catherine. And it wasn't the case. Yep. Catherine, thank you very much for calling in. Okay, thank you, Ian, and thank you for doing this today. Cheers to everyone. Absolutely. Uh, Cheers to Steve Pakin, who's done such a fantastic job. Uh, uh, Steve, we have about a minute left uh, in the program. I want to ask you about Lucien Bouchard, a close friend, a political ally of Brian Mulroney when they were you know, when they they became the government, uh, but then a, a split and Lucien Bouchard eventually creating and leading the Bloc Québécois. Uh, Brian Mulroney was incensed at him. Uh, and, and yet we discovered after the death of Brian Mulroney that there was a rapprochement between the two men. Were you surprised at that? Yes, because, uh, and again, I remember talking to Mr. Mulroney about this during one of our conversations, oh, maybe 10, 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, I sort of prodded a little bit, you know, is there any hope of a reconciliation there? And he just, I mean, he just looked down at his shoes and it it was, it was too painful for him even then to talk about. Uh, So uh, I'm surprised, but happy for both of them that it happened because, um, because it needed to happen. It should have happened. They were so close back in the day and it makes sense that they eventually get that rapprochement before it was too late. So good on both of them. When it comes to politics, and maybe Hamilton and the Red Sox as well, Steve, you are the perfect guest. So thank you very much (laughs) for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Great to be with you, Ian. You take care. Steve Pakin, a journalist and host of TV Ontario's The Agenda with Steve Pakin. That's it for Checkup, the podcast this week. You've been listening to Cross Country Checkup's live broadcast on CBC Radio from March 3rd, 2024. If you'd like to share comments or appear on the show, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Thanks to everyone who helped this week. Our phone screeners are Catriana DeSante, Chloe Kim, and Celine Aaron. Our TV team, Caleb Isaac, Naveen Hassan, Paul Tarantelli, and Richard Grundy. Technical production and editing from Will Yar and Matthias Wilson. Cross Country Checkup was produced this week by Ruxar Ali, Abby Plenner, and Rachel DeGaspers. Digital producer is Sinisha Yolich. The senior producer of the program is Steve Howard. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. The next edition of Checkup the Podcast will be posted after the live show next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.